Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that we can stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are grateful for all that he has accomplished for us. That we have no hope, no way apart from him. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue to reflect on your gospel and what you have done to save us, I pray, Father, that you would help us to just continue to think deeper on the gospel, that you would continue to cause us to grow in our understanding of this eternal plan, and that, Father, that we would understand that we haven't even scratched the surface of where we're at as we understand how great and how glorious this gospel really is because of how great and glorious you, the God of this gospel, is. And so, Lord, help us to grow in that, that we may continue to respond in the gospel in a way that honors and glorifies you. I thank you. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 21 to 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Now, as we, uh, we think about this passage as you're turning there, I've always loved the way Ray Comfort responds to someone who will not humble themselves under the law, uh, who will not see themselves as a sinner in need of saving, that despite seeing God's commandments and seeing them and showing them that they are sinful, even them willingly admitting that they are liars and thieves and adulterers and idolaters and, and on and on you can go, but they still then seek to justify themselves. And they'll say something to the gist of, no, but, but I really am a good person, and God is a good God, and so he forgives, and he knows I'm trying, and he knows all the good things that I do. He knows that I go to church, and I pray, and I, I help little old ladies cross the street, and, and I volunteer my time. He knows all these things. And, you know, there could be a slew of other things someone may add to the good deeds that they think God should take into account, and so therefore excuse them of their sin. And Ray Comfort's response is to paint them a picture of a courtroom and a man standing as a guilty murderer before the judge. And before the judge passes sentence, the man pleads with the judge, Judge, you are a good and just judge. And so you must understand all the good things that I've done with my life and, and all the things that I do. I, I volunteer my time at the soup kitchen. I, I donate my money to a, a children's hospital. And, and on and on this man can go with, with all of the things he wants the judge to take into account. But what will the judge say? The judge will say, all of those good things are irrelevant to the case. The truth remains, you broke the law, and because I am a good and righteous judge, I must give you what you have earned for breaking the law. And it's true for us. Even as we stand before the judgment bar of God, whatever supposed good deeds we want to claim as to why God should accept us, and why God should acquit us for breaking his law. The truth remains that the price must be paid for breaking the law. 
then it doesn't matter all of our good deeds. They're irrelevant to the fact we broke the law. And, and remember even, too, what we've already said about our good deeds. What? They're, they're tainted with our sin. Right? They're, they're actually filthy rags. They're disgusting before God. And that's what we're going to offer him to convince him to acquit us and to forgive us of our sins? No, the price must be paid. And we've discussed God's demand of righteousness. And that demand of righteousness also includes the satisfaction of justice for violating the righteous standard, for breaking the law. And so even as we've mentioned the fact that Jesus has been good for us, Jesus kept the law for us, he kept God's law perfectly, but if he did not also suffer under the wrath of God, under the justice of God for us, if he did not shed his blood, there could be no forgiveness of our sins. And what we see here in our text today is that if God were to let us go and declare us righteous, if he was even to credit Jesus' righteousness to us, Jesus' righteous life, but Jesus never died for us, then to acquit us and declare us righteous while his justice went unmet would make God unjust. And therefore, it would be unjust for God to let us go free, welcome us into his kingdom as righteous citizens because his justice has gone unmet. And so what we see here in our text for this morning is how vital the cross of Christ is to our justification. That the cross of Christ is the heartbeat of the gospel. And therefore, the cross of Christ is the fulfillment of our justification. So as we've been going through Romans, uh, we've read how the Apostle Paul has demonstrated how God's wrath has been revealed from heaven and poured out on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. As Paul has shown, Gentiles are all sinners, uh, that they have not upheld God's righteous standard. And so therefore, they are under judgment. And Paul then also showed how the Jews are actually in no better shape than the Gentiles. Because even though uh, they were trusted with God's word, that they had the law and circumcision, they didn't obey the law. They did not uphold God's standard of righteousness, and so they too have no righteousness. And this is what Paul had been getting at, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18. As Paul had been making his first point to demonstrate the truth of the gospel as the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. And that it is the power of God for salvation because in it the righteous of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live not by works. No, it says the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul has shown that all need righteousness because all are without it. And the idea that none of us have righteousness, that, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. And, again, that includes all of us, that we are all under sin in of ourselves. 
And so then the last two Sundays, uh, we've looked at verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, where Paul wraps up his first argument, his first point, and he presents support from the Old Testament, supporting the assertion that all are under sin. And there we saw the total depravity of man, that we are all sinful through and through, and that the law shuts every mouth and holds the whole world accountable before God. And therefore, the law holds us under condemnation, awaiting that coming wrath. Again, that's the bad news. And that's where Paul starts. And we've said we need to follow Paul's example. As we defend and explain the gospel, as we share the gospel with the lost, it is necessary for us to start with the bad news. Because you cannot understand the good news. And again, the word gospel means good news. You can't understand the gospel apart from the bad news. You can't understand how good the gospel is and appreciate it as good news without the bad news. And so, therefore, again, Paul starts with the bad news as he drives home his point. And that's what we've been going over. We've hit on the bad news as as Paul has been hitting on it. And now... After 17 weeks going through Romans, which, for the record, that's, that's actually a pretty, pretty good clip. That's, we're moving pretty quickly through Romans, in all honesty. But nonetheless, after 17 weeks of being in Romans, we are finally coming to the good news. So that's exciting. And as we come to these verses, uh, these are verses that most scholars and commentators will tell you contain the central theme of Romans, and that the essence of this letter is contained in these verses. And so if you would, let's read these verses together. Again, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we see here as we come to this section is a logical progression. And this progression is a contrast to what we have been going over, that all are under sin. And really, more specifically, it's in contrast to what we left off reading last week there in verse 20. When it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you're going to be a good person, if you're going to be righteous, and therefore be good enough and righteous enough to enter heaven, you must be good and righteous according to God's standard, according to his law. It's not our own standard that matters. It's God's standard that matters. He's the judge. 
And so as we saw in chapter 2, verse 13, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. But when we look at the law, what do we find? We haven't done what the law says. We haven't met the standard of the law. The law does not show that we are righteous. Instead, the law shows us our sin. The law shows us not only our sin and that we have not met the standard, but the law also shows us we can't meet the standard. We are sinful. We are sinners. And so when we look at the law, we we just see reasons why we should be judged. And so then in contrast to that, we we come to uh, the section we're in now and that we start now, and we read Paul say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the the law reveals God's righteous standard. It reflects God's own righteousness himself. And we see we have not met that standard. We are condemned. And then we come and say, but now, but now in in this time, uh, the time that is since Christ has come and the apostles are, are preaching the gospel and lay the foundation of the church. Now in this time, righteousness is revealed apart from the law. It's revealed, it's manifested, it's made known. And so we see this righteousness talking about here is not the righteousness of God's standard by which he will judge all of us, but this righteousness that's made known is the righteousness that God gives. The righteousness by which God declares someone righteous. This righteousness is revealed apart from the law. A righteousness that is apart from what you and I do. Which is really amazing if you think about it. Because our natural position is to look to what we do. We want to point to ourselves and we want to show how good we are. Right? We do things so that in our own thinking, in our pride, we can build ourselves up and say, hey, look how good I am. And be happy with ourselves. And we want other people to see our good works. And we want other people to pat us on the back and say, you know, he's a real good guy. That's what we want. And so we want a righteousness in which we can bring glory to ourselves as we point to ourselves. That's all of our natural position. But God says, you're not worthy of glory. God makes it clear he's the only one that's worthy of glory. And so his plan is that we would be righteous, not with a righteousness that would point to ourselves, but a righteousness that would point everyone back to him. To not say, look how good I am, but instead to say, look how good he is. Look how great and glorious he is. And that's the righteousness that's revealed apart from the law, apart from any works that you and I can do. It's all about his honor and his glory. So it's the righteousness that God has supplied for sinners, sinners who have not met the standard of the law. 
And so it's apart from the law, apart from our works. Yet, even though it's, it's now that this has been revealed, now since, since Christ has come and the apostles are preaching the gospel, even though it's now, it's not a new concept. Because what Paul says here is that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And saying the law and the prophets together is a way of referring to the entire Old Testament. And so the Old Testament testifies to this. And, and we've talked about some of this already. Again, the law shows us our sin. The law shows us we're not righteous. But the law also says God demands righteousness. And so what else can we do but when we look to the law, but look somewhere else for righteousness? We have to look outside of ourselves. That's what the law screams. You need righteousness, but you can't find it in you. So you need to look for what Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's outside of yourself. So we have to look to the one who has been righteous, who is righteous. That there is one who has pleased the Father in all that he has done and has pleased the Father for us. And so we must look to him. And then to the prophets. The prophets point ahead to the one that was promised that would come. This one that the prophet Jeremiah called Yahweh Tzikidnu. Tzikidnu means our righteousness. And this one to come was Yahweh. It was God. He is the son that was given, the child that was born. The one, as Daniel says, whose kingdom will never end. He is the man of sorrows, as Isaiah called him. And Isaiah, speaking of believing Israel in the future, saying he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we know from the New Testament, for instance, with the Apostle Peter, that that, that passage applies to us as well. That we can say that he was crushed for us for our iniquities, that he was the, the punishment, the wrath that was laid on him brought us peace with God. And by his wounds, you and I, brothers and sisters, are healed. This is the manifestation of righteousness apart from the law. The manifestation, the, the revealing of righteousness that the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, testifies to as the Old Testament testifies to Christ. And so it's clear that this is the righteousness that the Apostle Paul mentioned right from the beginning of this letter. The righteousness that's revealed in the Gospel that's from God. And so again, it's not from anything about you and I. But it's from God. From faith to faith. And it's the very thing that makes the gospel the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so can you see how Paul has built his argument? You have no righteousness, but in the gospel, righteousness is revealed. And therefore the gospel, not you, not what you do, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
So again, we have no righteousness. And whether Jew or Gentile, no one stands as righteous before God in of themselves, but instead are condemned under sin, as the law makes clear. But now. As we think about that, what an incredible transition this is into this new section. That it says, but now. Because on some level, that's not what it should say. On some level, it should say, so. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, so you are lost. So you have no hope but to wait for God's just wrath to fall on you. Your only expectation is to be crushed, to forever suffer condemnation under the law's demands for lawbreakers. That is what it should say. And so when we come to the text, and instead of reading so, we read but. That should be so amazing to us. And if we really understand and believe that it should say, so, you are lost, you are condemned, when we come and we read what we do instead, we have to concur with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said that there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. I was condemned under the law, but now I have hope. The law showed me I was without righteousness. But now there is righteousness supplied for me apart from the law. And, and as Paul goes on here, he, he makes it very clear what he's talking about. And so as we come to verse 22, he, he explains further this righteousness of God, saying that this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And we should know exactly how he words this here. It's through or by faith. As in faith is the vehicle by which righteousness from God gets to us. So it is through faith in Jesus Christ as opposed to being because of or due to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is not the basis for our justification. Christ and his work is the basis of our justification. And when we place faith in Christ, we are then clothed in His righteousness. So again, faith is the vehicle that gets that righteousness to us. But Christ is the basis for it. It is through Christ that God has supplied this righteousness. And so this righteousness is not for anyone who works for it. But it's for those who have faith in Jesus. Therefore, this righteousness is for all who believe, as Paul says here. If you do not believe, this righteousness is not for you. If you are trusting in anything else, believing in your righteous works, believing in your baptism, believing in your church attendance and membership, if you're even believing in the fact that one day you said a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to express your faith in a prayer, but if that prayer is what you are depending upon to be saved, then yes, that is wrong. 
or if you're depending upon the fact that you grew up in a Christian home. If that's where your faith is, my friend, you're not saved. You're not. Because you remain unrighteous, under sin before the holy God. You stand condemned, awaiting wrath. For this righteousness is through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. You must believe in Christ. Your faith must be in Christ. And why is it to all who believe? Well, Paul says here, because there's, there's no distinction. And so all who believe, because it's not just for the Jew, but Jew and Gentile alike who believe are made righteous before God. And the reason it's without distinction is because of what Paul showed in the previous section. Again, both Gentiles and Jews are under sin. Gentiles, in all of their wickedness, spiraling down in all of their depravity, have no righteousness, just like the Jews, despite all of their privileges, did not keep the law, and so therefore have no righteousness. There's no distinction. Both stand condemned before God. And therefore, there's no distinction. This righteousness is for all who believe. And there's no distinction, as, again, Paul says there in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mankind was created to be in the presence of God, to be in his glory and share in his glory. Now, we were made in the image of God, and so we're to reflect his glory. But since all have sinned, all fall short of, or it could also be translated as, all lack God's glory. Because of our sin, we lack both that moral goodness and righteousness reflected in his law, and so too we fall short of that which is of God's essence, his glorious nature, his beauty, his greatness. And so the truth is, God is good, and we're not. Falling short of all that glory in our sin. And so our relationship with God is then broken. But in Christ, that relationship is restored. And the day is coming when freed from the current presence of sins, uh, because of Christ now, we are free from the enslavement and power of sin and the condemnation of sin, but the day is coming when we will be free from the presence of sin. <laughs> we look forward to that. That is a glorious day for sure. And that is secured for us in Christ. And in that day, when that day comes, in the redemption of our bodies, we will know in fullness that relationship as we will be restored to the glory of God. You want to read more on that? You can look ahead to Romans chapter 8. It's a great day. But the condition of every man is as fallen in of themselves. There is no distinction. Every person in of themselves is without righteousness, without hope, condemned under sin, awaiting wrath. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And though people have sinned, 
They have this broken relationship with God. Nonetheless, people who believe are being justified freely. Being justified freely by grace. This idea of being justified is that they're being declared righteous. And it's freely. It's without anything that we have to offer God. It's without any works of our own. There is nothing you and I can give. Remember, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing. We have to come to God with nothing but empty hands. So we are justified freely, without payment. But we have to recognize the payment was already made. That's why it's free to us. We'll we'll talk about that more in a moment. Therefore, the nature of this justification is, as the English Standard Version translates this word freely here, the nature of it is as a gift. Because what's the nature of a gift? It's free. It's free to the one who receives it. You don't have to pay for it. Matter of fact, you can't pay for it. If it's given, it's given freely, or it's not given at all. And so it's given freely because it's given by His grace. We freely get justified. And the idea of this justification, again, it's a legal term, where God declares you righteous. It's an illegal transaction where God declares His righteous standard fulfilled on your behalf as He credits the righteousness of Jesus to you who believe. And so the sinner, the lawbreaker, is acquitted and allowed to go free by grace. And what's grace? It's God's unmerited favor. Therefore, this justification is unearned and it's given without obligation. God is not obligated to justify you. And I think sometimes we need to be careful as we talk about that we're saved by grace through faith, because even though we wouldn't say, no, we're obligated, sometimes the way we describe these things, we make it sound like we're obligated. That God has to give me justification because I have faith. But we need to be careful, because that faith itself also comes from God as a gift. Our right standing before God is not obligated to us. All of it is freely given as a gift by His grace. It's given to us, not by obligation, but by the free will of God to give it to us. And again, this grace is the idea of of that goodness and that favor that's given to us that we don't deserve. So by grace, through nothing about ourselves, we are justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This acquittal is only possible because of the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's because of the price that Christ paid. The word redemption refers to a a deliverance or freedom that came about because the price for it was paid. In the Roman world, it often refers to a a prisoner or a slave who set free because the price of their freedom was paid. There is a price for our sin that is owed to God. 
And Christ comes and he pays that price so his people can go free. And so then think of, of how high the cost is. This is the cost of the life of the infinite person of Christ. And why such an infinitely high cost? Because our sin is that costly. Remember, we, we discuss how we very often downplay our sin. We minimize our sin. You know, everybody lies. Nobody's perfect. And, and, and we look at our sin in comparison to other sinners. And so we minimize it. But that's not the comparison. We need to view our sin in light of a holy God. And only then will we understand how heinous our sin really is. Even though it's those little tiny sins that, that we think are no big deal. No, our sin is heinous before a holy God. That to pay the debt that was owed because of our sin, under which we're enslaved, it took the price of the infinite person of God the Son to pay it. And so with that price paid, though, our justification, uh, righteousness being credited to our account, so God declaring us righteous when we believe is made possible. All because of Christ paying for it. And so our justification, this gift of God's grace, is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to, to further explain uh, why it's this price that makes our justification possible. As we continue going, uh, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, as we read there in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus Christ is put forward by God the Father. It's what God has done, which is a, a far cry from what some say that the Son had to step in and convince the Father to divert his wrath from sinners to himself. It's a far cry from the, paint, the picture that some paint where the Father is all wrath and anger towards the sinner and the Son is all compassion towards the sinner. And so the Son had to step in the way of God's wrath for the sinner. That's not the picture at all. That's not what Scripture teaches us. It was God the Father initiating this and putting the Son forward Himself and making Him a propitiation for our sin by His blood. Now, there's some debate on how to understand this word that is translated propitiation. The, this word in the Greek, it's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's used to refer to the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid on the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, where when the high priest would come in once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood on the sacrifice to make atonement for God's covenant people. And so it's the place where atonement is made. And so that's what some say uh, this word refers to. Uh, others see it as referring to expiation, where God takes our sin and our guilt and he, he removes it. He, he takes it away and he, he wipes it clean. 
And in fairness, as you think of those concepts, they, they all have merit for this word being those things. And matter of fact, they are really all true, right? That is true of what Christ has done. And so I'm not going to uh, get into a skirmish with anybody that, that takes the view of those two, those two words, especially since there are much smarter guys than I that I have no right to even think about debating with uh, who take those positions. But I am pretty convinced right now that the ESV, the, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James, the Legacy Bible, and others that translates this as propitiation, that they are correct to do so. Especially when you think of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how it was supposed to point ahead to Christ's final sacrifice. And two, even just the context here in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a propitiation. That is to say, God presented Christ as a satisfaction of his wrath and justice that was because of our sin. And he did this by his blood. And to say Christ's blood is to refer to Christ's suffering and death on the cross. His suffering and death was necessary. And it was there on the cross that God poured out his wrath and his anger and the fullness of his justice upon Christ in the place of those whom he saves. And Christ had to be sacrificed. Christ had to shed his blood. And in saying all that, because I don't want us to minimize at all all the physical suffering that Christ went through. We should not minimize the beatings and the whips and the crown of thorns and the nails that, that hung him on the tree. We should not minimize the shedding of his blood, for all of that was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But we're mistaken if we think that's all there is. That it was just those things that atoned for our sin. Now we read in Isaiah 53, verse 10, that it was the Lord's will to crush him. And that his spirit was offered as a guilt offering. And if we understand the idea of the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, we would understand the guilt offering refers to the taking of wrath. God poured out his infinite wrath on his son that was marked for wretched sinners. He paid that infinite price as only he could to satisfy God's wrath in our place. And we need to understand that. We need to understand all that he suffered, yes, the cross, but that he also suffered wrath. And that under that wrath, he died. Sometimes as we talk about Christ's death, especially, I think, with our culture and, and how we celebrate Easter and all of those things, uh, that, that this death becomes this, this just non, this, this not concrete, I'm losing a word here, <laughs> But this concept that we can kind of distance ourselves from. As if it wasn't a literal death. No, this man, Jesus Christ, died. In time. In a specific place. 
He literally died. He really died for me. So I could go free. So I could live. And for all of us who can say that, he died for me. We know what amazing grace that is, what love that is. And if we understand that and we really believe it, how does it not affect us? He really died for you. No wonder Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Are we taken aback to think that is amazing love? How can it be? A wretch like me? I deserve hell. I don't deserve for anyone to die for me. And he willingly did so. And only my God could die for me. Only the God-man could stand in my place as the perfect substitute. Only God, as Paul Washer has said, could endure the wrath of God and rise again. It took the infinite person of Jesus Christ to pay that price. And he paid it in full. As he declared before giving up his spirit on the cross, it is finished. The price of redemption was fully paid. The wrath of God for all who believe was fully satisfied so that there is no more wrath for anyone to pay. So if Christ died for someone's sin, how can they continue then to pay for their sin in eternal hell under wrath? If he died for you, he paid the price in full. That's why I have hope. I don't have to fear wrath to come because Christ took it fully on himself. There's no more wrath to pay. I know that's a controversial thought, but I'm sorry, it's the clear teaching of Scripture. The Scripture blatantly says that. Or else Christ could not declare the price being paid that it is finished. Christ did not purchase a potential salvation by which then I complete by my faith. That's a weak Savior. Christ fully paid for and accomplished my salvation apart from anything of me. I'm not saved because I have faith. I have faith because Christ saved me. And that's why he gets all the glory. That's why he is such a mighty Savior. And this is just the plain teaching of Scripture. There's no more wrath for me, and no more wrath for you who believe. I deserve wrath. I get this free gift of justification by His grace to be received, as Paul says here, by faith, though I'm wretched. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full redemption, full redemption, can it be? Yes, because He purchased it. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is our great Savior. This is the great salvation that is the power of God. And so then why? 
Why did God put Christ forward as the satisfaction by his blood? Why? Now, as I ask that, maybe you're thinking, what, what do you mean, why? Don't you see? Can't you read? Don't you know the gospel? How can you ask why? He did it for us. Christ died for us. I mean, don't we sing, for me he died, for me he lives? He died for me. He died for you. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he did not die for us who believe. He did. But we need to keep going through this passage before we answer that question. In the middle of verse 25, we see a a purpose clause. And at the beginning of verse 26, we see a purpose clause. And at the end of verse 26, we see a purpose clause. And all of those purpose clauses point back to why God put Christ forward as a satisfaction by his blood. So verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Under the old covenant, God forgave the sins of those who trusted in him. For instance, again, over the summer we read about a idolater, a liar named Abraham, right? And yet, by faith, Abraham was justified before God. And he could be because salvation has always been the same. Salvation is always by grace, justification always by faith, always looking ahead to Abraham's greatest descendant, Jesus the Messiah. Always. But how could God let sinners go free, forgiving their sin, if his justice goes unsatisfied? Because God knew in Christ he would satisfy his wrath and justice. And so in patience he held back his wrath for those who believed under the old covenant in order to satisfy that wrath through the price that Christ would pay. And so where, from a human perspective, one could say, how can you forgive such, such an idolater as Abraham? Or how could you forgive such a hot-tempered murderer like Moses? Or how can you forgive an adulterer like David? A righteous judge would not let the price go unpaid. And that's right, a righteous judge wouldn't let the price go unpaid. And so where's the answer? In Christ. The price is paid in Christ. In his redeeming work, God shows that he is righteous. Even though he forgave David and forgave Abraham and Moses and Aaron and Job and Josiah and on and on and on. Because he satisfied his justice against them in Christ. And then Paul gives another reason why God presented Christ as a satisfaction in his blood. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So not only did Christ sacrifice, vindicate God as a just God having forgiven sins under the old covenant before Christ came, but now even since Christ came, God continues to forgive sin, continues to justify sinners. And so then Christ died 
to vindicate God even as he forgives sinners today. And then Paul gives again another purpose cause there at the end of verse 26 that God sent Christ to satisfy by his blood that the reason Christ died was so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, why did God present Christ as a satisfaction? Why did Christ die? Well, according to these verses, Christ died for God. Only in Christ could God justify sinners and still remain just. Because without Christ, if God's justice is not satisfied and he forgives sinners, then God is unjust. So Christ died for God. We don't often think of it that way, do we? But we really have to see how God-centered the gospel really is. Christ died for God. Way too often the gospel is presented in such a way that it's man-centered. It's all about us. It's all about what we get, how much God loves us. Now, again, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Am I saying we don't get from the gospel that we don't benefit? No, we certainly do. Am I saying that God doesn't love us? No, he does. He certainly does. But first and foremost, the gospel is about God. John Piper said, Before the cross could be for our sake, it must be for God's sake. The idea, though, that we mostly hear in modern Christianity is that Christ's sacrifice was first and foremost for us, about us. And we know that's true because we hear it in popular songs all the time. Right? A a more current song that we hear it in sometimes goes like this. You didn't want heaven without us. So, Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great. Your love was greater. What could separate us now? I was just so lovable. I mean, I just made the difference, right? He didn't want heaven without me. I just just made the difference. Sorry, that's nonsense. It's just emotional gobbledygook. That's all it really is. God didn't need me to be satisfied. Uh, Ask any of the men that's been in the men's Bible studies. We talked about the Trinity. God has been satisfied in himself, in each person of the Trinity, in their relationship together. He didn't need us to fulfill anything about him. He's eternally satisfied in himself. And this is a hill song. And listen, Hillsong is is a bunch of emotional gobbledygook. And even the songs that don't necessarily have doctrinal error, necessarily, they're still used to draw people into their doctrinal error. And in having their songs and and singing their songs together corporately, we, we, we actually end up 
giving and promoting a, a, a organization that preaches a false gospel. And so there is no place for Hillsong in the church. But it's not just this. There's a song maybe like 20 years or so also as well that the same concept was there. A song that says you... Oh, that's the wrong one. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Is that true? Did he really think of me above all? Well, what does the Bible say? What, what did Jesus himself say? Well, in his high priestly prayer, again, which the context is, is, is the cross of this, when Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Through that work on the cross, God, or Christ, glorified God the Father, that he himself would be glorified. First and foremost, Christ came for God. Again, did Jesus die for us? Yes. Does he love us? Does God love us? Yes. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, he loves us, but his love is a demonstration of his glory. John Piper also said this. God saw his glory being despised by sinners. He saw his worth belittled and his name dishonored by our sin. And rather than vindicating the worth of his glory by slaying his people, he vindicated his glory by slaying his son. Through Christ, God demonstrates how great he is and that he is so great and worthy of everything. Even our salvation is about him. Even in him saving us, it's about him. That's what he said of Israel, of Israel too, in, in Isaiah. Why did he preserve a remnant? Why is he saving Israel? He says, for my glory, for my name's sake. That's what he told Israel. And the same is for us as well. It's all for his glory. And listen, unless God graciously saves, no matter how convincing we try to be to someone, people will not look to him. Again, unless he graciously saves. And so we, we do not want to play foolish games to lower his greatness, to make him more attractive to lowly sinners. No, we have to lift up high before their eyes the righteous God who only saves sinners through Jesus Christ. We have to make it very clear, when you come to Christ, you come to him for the glory of God. When you live for Christ in response to his saving you, you live for his glory because he's worthy of glory. This is the God who saves. This is the God who is. We must present God as he is. Because only this God saves. And he only saves through Jesus Christ. Because only Christ satisfied God's justice in the place of sinners. And therefore, to be saved, you must trust in Christ alone. Because only in him could God be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Because of Christ, God can declare us righteous. 
even though we're sinners. Because of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that comes from God in the gospel that is by faith. And so, my friends, trust in Jesus Christ. If you have not, look to Christ and you will be saved. Because Christ paid the price to save sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for what Christ has done. Let us live in response. Let us see you high and exalted before our eyes to recognize everything is for your glory and that we would live every moment for your glory and proclaim the gospel for your glory. We thank you. Amen.